It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine. The latest. Today, we bring you news from across the front line, report on Russia's brainwashing of Ukrainian children, and try to evaluate the Ukrainian counteroffensive. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield, to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We are Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Tuesday, the 18th of July, one year and 144 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today I'm joined by Brussels correspondent Joe Barnes, China correspondent Sophia Yan and Russia correspondent Natalia Vasilyeva. And later, foreign reporter Verity Bowman interviews Liza Cassinidi from the charity Helping to Leave. I started by asking Joe for the latest news from Ukraine. Hi folks, I uh, hope you can hear me loud and clear. Um, so let's start with, um, overnight Ukraine was said to have launched dozens of drones over Crimea. And it comes basically a day after Russia accused Ukraine of striking the Kerch Bridge, the bridge that connects the occupied Peninsula of Crimea and mainland Russia. Uh, Russia's defence ministry said it had downed 28 drones over Crimea, complaining they claiming they did not cause any casualties or damage. Uh, air raid alerts basically were sounded across Ukraine's south and east, also as Russia launched sort of retaliatory strikes. One of the most sort of reported on strikes is. Russian drone and cruise missiles hitting port infrastructure in Odessa, which left one person injured, officials have said. Uh, Russia said these uh, attacks were an act of revenge for the bombing, bombing of the Kerch Bridge. Uh, you'll, you'll, um, if you uh, read our copy overnight by myself and James Kilner, we noted that Putin had basically promised appropriate reprisals, and this seems to be the first. Um, so Ukraine's southern command said that six caliber cruise missiles and 21 Iranian Shahid drones uh, had been destroyed by air defences, but it but it added, unfortunately, the debris of the downed missiles and the blast waves from the from the downing damaged the port infrastructure facilities and several private homes. An elderly man was said to have been injured in his home and is receiving treatment. But that attack is also symbolic 
because Odessa, the southern port and the Black Sea has been out of, not out of reach, but it's been left out of harm's way largely because of the Black Sea grain deal that's backed by the UN, Russia, Ukraine, Turkey are involved in it. But Russia has pulled out of that now. So basically it sees Odessa as an open goal, which it's probably going to attack more in the future. In Mykolaiv, it's another southern port city just further along the coast of the southern coast in Ukraine. A fire broke out after an overnight attack. Its local governor said Vitaly Kim wrote on Telegram that the fire had been extinguished, adding there had been no casualties. Again, uh, it was Shahid drones that were... Um, that were blamed for the attack. So Mykolaiv, just to give you some context, is a roughly around 100 miles from the illegally annexed peninsula of Crimea, and it is, it is frequently being targeted. It's, it's one of those areas where, as sort of a journalist going in there, you know that you're going to be up all night with air raid sirens, because it's, it's, within, it's, it's within missile, shorter range missile range as well, so it's one of those very active spots. In Zaporizhia, a 72-year-old woman was killed after an airstrike hit a residential building. Again, that's in sort of southeast Ukraine. The uh, regional military administration said the missiles, drones and aircraft had injured another five people in the past day, while houses and other buildings have been damaged. Uh, it wrote on Telegram, a 72-year-old woman died as a result of an airstrike on a residential area in Orihova. Sorry, I probably pronounced that horrifically. Another five residents were injured. And then they basically, typical Ukrainian line, the enemy will answer for every crime. Then a little bit on the counteroffensive going on. Uh, we'll come back and touch on that in greater detail later. But the general staff, Ukraine's general staff this morning, announced progress in the directions of Mala Topmaka and Nova Pokovka and the Velka Novosilka lines in southern Donetsk. It said Ukrainian forces have taken and solidified positions there. And that was published in its morning report today on Tuesday the 18th. It has also reported advances north and south of Bakhmut, where it said Russia was pouring in new reserves to defend the area. It also then went uh, on to say that Russia is concentrating its offensive efforts in Kupyansk, which is slightly further up towards Kharkiv. Yesterday, so on Monday, a spokesman for Ukraine's eastern grouping of forces said Russia had mounted around 100,000 troops, 900 tanks, and of 1,000 other sort of deep fires, their artillery systems, multi-launch rocket systems, on the Liman and Kupiansk uh, line of attack. Um, so that's, that's quite interesting one to look out for in the future. Um, then to the UK's uh, defence intelligence briefing on Twitter this morning, it said that uh, Ukraine is maintaining a small beachhead on the Dnipro River's left bank near the destroyed Antonovsky Bridge in the Kherson Oblast. It says on this front, which is more of a, a sort of probing, like testing lines of, of Russian defence rather than a full offensive. Uh, Russia is uh, conserving artillery shells, so it's saving ammunition. It doesn't seem to be answering a lot to Ukraine's attempts to push forward and probe at lines. But the MOD also did note that Russian forces have attempted to push west through the forests, uh, west of Crimea. So that is an interesting development there that it seems to be the Russians are looking to go on the offensive in some areas. And then some more quick announcements. On cluster bombs, uh, Ukraine's ground forces commander has said they will arrive on the front line within days. These are the um, ammunitions uh, recently donated and approved by the United States. 
And he suggested the uh, ammunition would probably go straight to the back moot front line where M777 howitzers that are, uh, have the ability to fire them are already in position. Um, and then uh, just another short one on the Wagner affair, uh, a fourth convoy of mercenaries from Yevgeny Prigozhin's uh, spurned forces have reportedly arrived in Belarus. There was apparently a, a convoy of around 80 vehicles arrived in the country that neighbours both Russia and Ukraine. There's a lot of Eastern European tension over this. They're, they're heightening their defences on that border and are slightly curious and worried about what is going on. If you speak to sort of Americans and British defence people on this, they'll be less less worried. And the Ukrainians don't seem that worried. They said they're keeping an eye on it, but there doesn't seem to be much happening in that front, which will challenge. Um, and you'll remember that Belarus was used as a launching pad for troops sent by Russia to try and capture Kiev at the start of the war. So that is a line that has been traditionally used, but they're not too worried about it. And I'll, I'll take a pause there and let uh, Sophia and Natalia take over. Thank you. Thank you very much for that, Joe. Well, welcome, Natalia and Sophia. Thank you so much, both of you, for joining us. All this week, the Telegraph Foreign Desk is running stories on the kidnapped children of Ukraine by Russia and Belarus. So, Sophia, can I start with you? Louis Emmanuel, our deputy foreign editor, gave us the top lines and the, uh, introduced the, the sort of series of stories we're running. Can you talk to us about the Belarus story? This is just a reminder to our listeners. The headline is Belarus abducts thousands of Ukrainian children. And Sophia, talk us through it. What what is happening, do we think? All right. So the exclusive that we published kicking off our series, which is looking at this whole process from end to end, how Ukrainian children are getting moved, what's happening to them when they're held at these three education camps, the challenges, the heartbreak involved for the families trying to return them. We're looking at all of this. But what we found in the process of reporting the story is that Belarus is implicated in this entire forcible transfer of thousands of Ukrainian children. They're also being sent over to Belarus. Estimates are at 2,150 children since last September. And that figure is expected to rise to 3,000 total by this autumn. And so evidence linking the president of Belarus, Alexander Lukashenko, to the forced transfer of, uh, to the forced transfer of Ukrainian children has been submitted to the International Criminal Court by an organization called the National Anti-Crisis Management. Uh, it's run by a group of exiles who oppose the current Belarusian government. So at this point, the ICC could very well widen its war crimes investigation to include Belarus. Lukashenko, other officials in Belarus, could very much find themselves embroiled in a very serious situation. But what's interesting to point out is that this is not something that Belarus has tried very hard to hide. Instead, it's actually something the government seems to be quite proud of. We see it in state media. They talk about it pretty openly that Lukashenko has ordered for this to happen. And so the bigger geopolitical picture here is that Belarus and Russia are getting closer and closer. Belarus becoming a vassal state of Russia. Lukashenko, it seems, doing whatever Putin wants. Putin's puppet. Sophia, could we talk a little bit about the process? What happens to the children? Is, is, is there a pattern? Is it systematic? What have you seen? The process for the children, for the, the physical process for them to be moved, is that they actually travel through Russia. They're taken mostly from eastern Ukraine, from Russia, Russian-occupied areas. They're going to Rostov-on-Don, which is just about two hours away from the Ukrainian border. And if you remember, that's where Wagner was launching its mutiny recently. And so they go through Rostov-on-Don, then they get transferred by train to Minsk, to the capital of Belarus, then bused to various facilities. There are at least four locations that have been identified by researchers and human rights lawyers. 
most of them are in the Minsk region. There's one right on the border to Ukraine. And when they're there, they're subjected to a lot of what you, you could probably describe as brainwashing, singing the national anthem, the Russian national anthem, being told down with Ukraine, things like this. There's one video that's out there of these Belarusian pop stars who are entertaining quote-unquote children at one of these camps. And in this video, they're, they're saying all sorts of things that, you know, it's, uh, it's very strong. The sisters say in this video, quote, so that we live in peace, so that Biden dies, God forgive me, so that Zelensky dies too, and Putin prospers and takes control of all of Ukraine. This is just a taste of what these kids are being told, what they're being subjected to when they're being held in these facilities. And for the families looking for them, they may not even know that they're in Belarus. That just makes it that much harder to get them back. Thank you very much, Sophia. Uh, Natalia, would you like to add anything to that? And I'd be very interested in your thoughts on what Sophia said there about Belarus and Russia getting closer together. Sure. I mean, it absolutely uh, makes sense because, as our listeners might know, Belarus has served as a launchpad for the invasion. But Lukashenko has so far tried to get, tried not to get his troops involved. So Belarusian boots on the ground have not stepped on the Ukrainian soil. And it looks like um, Lukashenko's participation in the in the systemic um, in this, in the system of deportation is Belarus is not doing. Uh, it's not sending its troops to fight, so it is contributing to the war to the broader Russian war effort, if I if I may put it in this way. Thanks, Natalia. Can I ask you both to just talk talk us through the the last year? I mean, how long how long has this been going on? When did it start? And do we know much of the do we know much of what's happening at the moment? Researchers have found evidence that the transfer of children actually began in the weeks before Russia invaded Ukraine in late February 2022. The premise that was given then was that they were quote unquote evacuating a group of about 500 purported orphans from Donetsk, and so authorities at the time were saying that this was due to the threat of an offensive by the Ukrainian military against what they were calling the People's Republics of Donetsk and Luhansk. So this is early Feb 2022. This is when Putin at the time was actually in China. He was in Beijing uh, at the invitation of Xi Jinping for the Beijing Winter Olympics. And so this was a moment where everyone was wondering what might happen. And then a few weeks later, the invasion began. And so even at that point, even before those tanks rolled across the border, it was those few weeks, they were clearly making these preparations. And it's a, it seems that the transfer of children has been going on for quite some time. And can I ask you both, what kind of response have you got from the Belarusian authorities when you've been trying to investigate this? Well, no response. Uh, I have to say that I, I wrote a very interesting email to them posing all the allegations, everything that we found, asking for comments. And well, we didn't get a response back. I suppose that may not be a surprise. I, I thought there was a chance perhaps that they would say something because, again, this is something that they haven't seemed so keen to hide. It is in state media, for instance, that this is happening. You know, it seems like something that they want to put out there. I mean, from their eyes, it's doing a, a great favor for the for their country, the, you know, supporting this effort. Uh, it's, it's just presented very differently in state media if you're looking at this in Belarus. Sophia mentioned the, the brainwashing elements of this. Natalia, you've got a, a, a story out today on The Telegraph. It came out at 11 a.m. London time. The headline is how Russia is brainwashing Ukrainian children to, quote, use as weapons. Can you tell us about this story? What were you looking at and what did you find? 
Yeah, basically that story came to be quite unexpectedly, you know, when we set out to do this investigative series, we thought that we would be looking at um, how children are being taken from Ukraine, what it's like in the camps, how, how are they getting back. But for as, as, as while I've been digging, I, I just started coming across bits and pieces sort of showing that there is a whole system of re-education re in place to Russify the children, as, as one might say. It's not a, it didn't appear to me to be a particularly well thought of program, but those efforts are in place and they were impossible to ignore. So I, I started looking into that and um, sort of I was pursuing different threads. One of them is what are Ukrainian children being taught in occupied territories? Uh, second is what they're being subjected at in camps. And also there's a tiny bit about the children who've been living in um, uh, Russia-controlled areas for a while, and like, what, what, what it, what does it do to you? Like, what, what happens eight years later? So I would, I would start with a bit about the camps where the parents and children that um, we spoke to, they did not testify to anything that would amount to a uh, massive, large-scale brainwashing program. It was more subtle. In some places, it was subtle. In some places, it was blunt. Like a lot of kids. Um, are saying that they were asked to memorize the lyrics of the Russian national anthem. They were forced to stand at attention and listen to the Russian anthem every morning. They were also brought in for special classes called conversations about what's important. That's a new school subject in Russian schools that Russian authorities introduced only at the start of this academic year. That sometimes some of the subjects are quite innocuous, but from, from what we have heard, basically the whole thing was it just gave teachers and minders at the camp an opportunity to talk about how great Russia are, how th those children at the camps should, they will, will be protected in Russia, that this is where they belong, that this is their motherland. Generally speaking, that propaganda was either too blunt for teenagers to believe, like I spoke to a couple of children, especially in their teens, who said that th those efforts really, I mean, it did nothing to them. It just only made them hate the whole thing. It was clearly so cynical, just like such a, such a cynical effort at bra brainwashing. But in terms of various children's recreation camps for kids across Russia, there are outliers. Like I've been looking at Chechnya that has hosted several groups of children from Russia and from Russia-occupied areas in Ukraine for two weeks in a camp with a clear military focus. So children apparently were offered, as it was described, a program of patriotic and spiritual education that included a masterclass on how to handle weapons, a visit to the National Guard base where Russian servicemen have showed off their skills to the kids, again, showed them how to, do, to deal with weapons like that. So it was, it's a quite a rare example, but it was there. Also, I think it's important to talk about what's happening to children who live in their hometowns and villages in Ukraine, uh, but they live under occupation. You know, if we look at Kherson or Zaporizhia, um, uh, we're talking about uh, a large area where um, uh, children who go to school, they already um, study according to the Russian curriculum. Um, I can talk about the curriculum a bit later, but just, I mean, I was just looking for, for um, some examples of like how things change and like what is Russia really, what is the Russian government really trying to do in the occupied areas. And I did come across 
a couple of stunning stories. Like, for example, apparently there was a drive, like nationwide drive last year to get school children to write letters to Russian soldiers on the front line. And apparently schools across the Kherson and Zaporizhia regions have been involved. Kids have been handed out blank pieces of paper or fill in forms to write words of support and gratitude to Russian soldiers, which obviously is a quite weird thing to do, considering the fact that those soldiers are have come to their land, are occupying uh, their areas. In other examples, it, I mean, also from what I'm looking, from what I've been looking at, it looks like propaganda efforts have varied from region to region, from school to school. For example, there's this town of Genichensk in uh, the Kherson region, where apparently local officials have managed to foster close ties with a special troops unit. So there's quite an astonishing video of a lecture posted online where masked men, full combat gear, cradling with their weapons, are uh, sitting there in the classroom um, talking to children about uh, patri- patriotism and how to love their motherland. There's another video with the same, I imagine the same group of servicemen as, as they're being described, who have taken out teenagers from a nursing school to a shooting ground to teach them how to handle a machine gun and submachine gun and things like that. So those efforts have varied. And also there's another part Another part in my investigation deals with textbooks, which is something that, you know, it's it's out there. Those textbooks have been published. They are available in Russia on occupied territories. But I just felt that no one really bothered to have a take a close look at them. I've been looking at those books. We've been doing it with researchers in Ukraine who have been um, scrutinizing them for years and who've been tracing how Russian textbooks change and how they change to become more politicized. For example, the most glaring change that you can see in the latest edition of uh, Social Studies for Year 12 is the fact that the widely used historical term Kievan Rus, which is a medieval state that brought together parts of modern-day Ukraine, Russia, and Belarus, how this term has been obliterated and replaced with an ancient Russian state, something which is not familiar to historical science. And across, across the books that we have studied, we saw that the very mention of Kiev and Ukraine is being obliterated together. There are also other episodes, and I, I encourage our listeners to go and check, check the story, We have pictures and videos of different textbooks, including an ABC book that is illustrated with a with a couple of cute grandchildren approaching their grandpa and asking him about his military exploits, as apparently he was a sniper in an unidentified war. Thank you very much for talking us through that, Natalia. These these thousands of children you talk about uh, who end up in these holding camps or in Households with adopted or forced foster parents thousands of miles from home. Some of them, of course, got away and are back in Ukraine. Um, Natalia, you, could you talk to us a little bit about some of the children who, who made it home? What, what have they been saying about their experiences? Sure. First off, I would like to say that neither us nor have 
any Ukrainian, reputable Ukrainian human rights researchers that we have worked with have found evidence of clear-cut adoptions. So when children end up in Russia, they could be placed in, they could be in the recreation camp, as they are called, they could be in orphanages, or they could be put into foster care. We haven't uncovered any evidence of adoption. I would like to be clear on that. In terms of where they end up, what, what happens, I think the most common pattern that we saw is you take a teenager from Kherson before the liberation of Kherson, something like last summer, early autumn. A kid gets sent to a recreation camp in Crimea. There's obviously a big question, how do they go to Crimea? Why did the parents think it was a good idea? I wouldn't want to delve too much into it, but for various reasons, at that time, a lot of parents thought that Russia would be there forever. Crimea was a safe place. Other kids have gone to the camp and came back with a nice suntan. So I would say the most most of the kids that we have been counting as forcibly deported, they have ended up in Russia through that route. When they were sent for recreation in Crimea, then the front line started shifting. Their parents ended up on the Ukrainian side. Those kids ended up on the Russian side. And from what we heard from parents, children, and activists, it looked like as soon as the parents were on the Ukrainian side and on the side controlled by the Ukrainian troops, the camp authorities suddenly changed their tune. They were not. They were like no longer nice to the kids. They started sometimes. Some of them told the parents straight away that you know you live in the enemy land now. We're not sending the kid back to the enemy land. And uh, it has taken many, many months for the parents to recover those kids. Again, like those journeys were difficult. They were dangerous. In a lot of cases, if you want to be more specific, a lot of those kids come from unprivileged backgrounds. That partly explains why they were still in occupied territories, why they were still in the war zone. Often parents didn't have the means or opportunity to move away. And those parents often didn't have foreign travel passports. They didn't have visas. They didn't have money to do anything. So Ukrainian authorities and NGOs have been helping those parents who've been reaching out for help. And uh, those parents had to take grueling journeys, often stretching for at least one week or even two weeks, traveling from Ukraine-controlled territory, often through Poland, Belarus, Russia, and then, for example, Crimea, if we talk about a camp in Crimea, and only then and there, they were able to take their children back. Sophia, you've been listening to this. Is there anything you'd like to add? Yeah, I wanted to highlight a little bit of the nitty-gritty. Um, what Natalia says is right about the adoption versus the fostering. I just want to clarify a bit about how Russia's viewing this whole situation. Their own laws actually on adoption require consent from the child's country of origin, which in this case is Ukraine. Ukraine has not given consent. At the same time, Russia has changed who they consider a citizen. They say Ukrainian these Ukrainian children are actually Russian citizens. So... From an international law perspective, the ICC, we know a few months back, issued arrest warrants for uh, Vladimir Putin, also for Maria Lvova-Bolova, Russia's commissioner for children's rights. Because from from that, looking at it from the ICC, from international perspective of international law, these are potential war crimes. I mean, the transfer of children, the forcible transfer of children is considered a war crime. And so they're looking at who could be held to account. 
from Russia's perspective, what they're doing is not illegal per se, because the scenario they've created with this change in citizenship means basically Russia saying these are Russian children being taken in by Russian families. What's so wrong about that? Right. So it's this sort of legal jujitsu, if you want to think about it that way, that they're playing this, this sort of game of trying to make this OK on paper. So I, I find that really interesting, rewriting the narrative as to what's happening in their own in their own way. Sophia, do you think that's why potentially Belarus, as you said earlier, has been fairly open about what's happening, but just portraying and portraying it in a different way to get that narrative out there instead of the one that, of course, the, the Ukrainians and, and the charities want? That's definitely part of it. There's a sense, you know, the way it's described when you see this in state media accounts, for instance, is that they're saving these Ukrainian children from the terrors of war. It's presented as doing something actually quite good. Uh, it does not address the fact that this is at this moment for Putin, for people like Lvova Belova, that they're, they could be in really very serious, you know, this is a very serious situation. But it also goes to speak to how close Belarus and Russia are getting. Vitalia talked about this already, but this is just the latest example that really shows that what, what's really happening. I mean, we've seen textbooks in Belarus getting rewritten to favor Russia's take on history. We've seen Belarus agree to allow Moscow to position tactical nuclear weapons on its soil, Belarus hosting Wagner. This is just another example that shows how aligned Lukashenko and Putin really are. And there are a lot of Belarusian activists who support democracy. They're in exile in countries like Poland. And what they're saying is that basically Lukashenko is taking Belarus to the point of no return. Could I ask you both for your thoughts on why do you think Russia is doing this? What what are the reasons? What is the reasoning behind this 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 re this as they describe it re-education? Sure, if if I may take it first, it's it's a really great question to ask, and I've been asking it myself a lot because obviously in my fifteen years of covering Russia, I've always I've I've often come come across a, a widely held belief that whatever happens in Russia is part of a master plan, it's part of the Kremlin sort of grand game and strategy. In reality, at the end of the day, things actually turn out to be more hectic and definitely not as planned as planned through as, as one might think. With the re-education thing, I would say first, this is something that started a long time ago. And this is what the regime has, has been doing gradually inside Russia. So it only makes sense for them to be sort of covering kids in occupied areas with, with that as well. I mean, like there's one there's one example that I came across reporting for that story about brainwashing that I wasn't really I wasn't really interviewing even this woman for that, but she just said something that really resonated to me. So I was interviewing this Ukrainian mother who had to move heaven and earth to get her children back, one from Moscow, the other from Russia-occupied town of Torez in the Donetsk region. So she was telling me about her jail time in Donetsk before the war. She was one of those people who were illegally jailed and charged with being a Ukrainian spy. She was kept in one of Donetsk illegal prisons that I even wrote about about three years ago. And she was telling me about the prison visit that she received, like a rare visit she received from her children. And she was seeing them at the jail that she was held at. And at that time, her youngest child was something like seven or eight, I don't remember. And she remembers how her, her children came to see her. And the younger boy at some point said something like, Russia is a great big country and it's protecting us all. And obviously the mother was quite shocked and she, she asked the child to, 
challenged him and she said, don't you think that your mother is here because she doesn't like Russia and this is what Russia is doing to you. And that's that's the exact result. I mean, that child has been living in this pro-Russian area for eight years and this is what it does to you. I mean, especially in the circumstances when the mother was jailed and all they had to rely is basically school education. So, of course, Russia would want to turn those children into friendly citizens loyal to Russia because you might think that older people, I don't know, late teens, people in their 20s, they are sort of too, it's too late to fix them and it's easier to fix children, however cynical this might sound. Well, thank you very much, Sophia and Natalia. Is there anything more to say on this for the moment, or shall I go back to Joe? I wanted to raise that the uh, Ukrainian prosecutor general has been investigating. There are more than 100 criminal cases now in Ukraine, likely many more that are going to be filed, uh, and they are looking for ways to hold people linked to the illegal forced deportation of children to hold people accountable. And so that's a process that is playing out separately to the ICC, uh, and that could take many years. But it is an important process in terms of gathering the evidence, whether or not these people could really be held to account, whether or not, for instance, Putin could be held to account is, is a big question. But the process of finding all the evidence, gathering the accounts, this is what a lot of uh, human rights lawyers have said is something that will be very important going forward. Well, thank you very much, Natalia and Sophia, for joining us today. I'd recommend all listeners do go and read the pieces on the Telegraph website. We'll add them to the show notes in the podcast, so you can find them there as well if you're listening on the podcast. Joe Barnes, yesterday we I we spoke to um, Roland and James Kilner, and I asked them just for their thoughts. We're coming up to maybe six six weeks, two months, depending on where, where you want to pin the start date to what we call the Ukrainian counteroffensive. On just just some of their draft thoughts and what they think the narrative, the story has been so far. You've also been having a think and a look at the stories over the past few months. What it, what's your take? Hi, yeah. Um, first to Natalia and Sophia, yeah, fan- fantastic work. I uh, really enjoyed sort of reading these harrowing stories. Um, but then, yeah, back to the counteroffensive. So I spent the last, I, I, I've put six weeks on it, but we could put two months. We could probably put longer if you look at the shaping and exercises and in place. But so it started off as like a, a series of broad kind of probing, shaping attacks across this kind of very extensive long front line. And now we've boiled it down to essentially three main axes of attack by the Ukrainians. Bakhmut in Donetsk, uh, a city that we know very well because Russia expended huge resources trying to capture it. And now Ukraine is basically making a very plucky attempt to double envelop it, to re- re-encircle it from the north and the south and so this is arguably where ukraine is having its most success on a day-to-day but then there are other two lines of attack uh, you have orikiv and tokmak in western zaporizhia which is driving down south towards militia pole on the sea of azov then you have velka novosilka in southern donetsk which again is also driving in that direction essentially both of these are probably aimed at severing the land bridge between mainland Russia and Crimea that's been created by Russia since the invasion on February the 23rd last year, or 24th. So I think it's fair to say that progress has been slower than expected. President Zelensky has admitted as much publicly. There has been a little bit of panic about the, the slow nature of the advances. I think if you speak to the Americans, they're especially worried, um, maybe because they're thinking that 
ahead to the sort of the presidential debate and the elections opening up there. But if you kind of speak to cooler Western heads, such as our outgoing Defence Secretary Ben Wallace, who told me the other day that we shouldn't have these concerns. And then, you, then we like started drilling down into what, why the West shouldn't be concerned about the slow rate of advance by Ukraine. Um, firstly, Ukraine is making advances on all three axes every day. So I, I, I mentioned in the sort of the at the top of the top of the pod that we that we had seen sort of the general staff had openly admitted to advances in certain areas. And then secondly, actually, it's quite an interesting point, and I don't think it is covered as much as it probably should be, but Russia is actually learning to adapt uh, to the tactics and the situation on the battlefield and to basically make itself a really like rock-solid, formidable defensive operation. Um, so we have heavily reported on Russia's very fortified lines of defence, um, which were put in place during the reign of now-resting uh, Russian General Sorovkin. The minefields, the tank traps, hundreds and hundreds of miles of trenches, those dragon teeth, those concrete contraptions that are designed to basically have a tank go over the top of them, rear up and expose its sort of weak underbelly to anti-tank weaponry. But, but even now, Russia is still sort of learning. As the counter, Ukraine's counteroffensive first kicked off, Ukraine was faced with a series of minefields created by the Russians, but they were littered with anti-tank mines. And basically, and it's no sort of, it's no easy feat, Kyiv's forces would simply dismount from their Western fighting vehicles and go into those minefields on foot, literally demining them by hand. Um, and they were able to navigate their, their way around and advance through the anti-tank mines. But now the Russians, and they've got some sort of fantastic weaponry for laying minefields at such an incredible rate, these like sort of the multi-launch rocket systems that instead of launching rockets, they actually launch sort of anti-tank and anti-personnel mines. And now what the Russians are doing are mixing mic or laying mixed minefields, including both anti-tank and anti-personnel mines. So that's essentially one extra sort of hurdle the Ukrainians have to jump over. And it's making conditions extremely tough. It slows them down a great deal. And it makes them increasingly vulnerable to deep fire from drones, artillery, and sort of other long-range weapons, even, even rifle fire if they get that close, and tank fire to the Russian lines. It's also fair to say, I think, this is if you speak to Western onlookers and the Ukrainians, they would admit that they, they lack real sort of combat engineering capabilities, and by that I mean sort of mine-clearing vehicles, which is just making their job crossing these minefields even harder. So Ben Wallace, when he was speaking at NATO, he made the headlines for essentially suggesting that Ukraine should be more grateful for its Western support because there are sort of actors out there like Republican politicians in America who don't want to support Ukraine as much and see it as a, a sort of a, a problem that the West is supporting them this much in terms of like kind of cash outlay. And he said that Britain had actually bought up all of the civilian mine clearing vehicles it could inside Britain to give to Ukraine. So that's kind of a show that maybe these defensive sort of engineering cap capabilities just aren't out there and Ukraine doesn't have enough of them to easily navigate these minefields. But then again, like we, I don't want this to come across as some sort of like gloomy, pessimistic outlook because it's not all woes and slow, slow advances. There have been some sort of real positives to take out of what Ukraine has achieved in this sort of six weeks. They've recaptured more land uh, from Russian, Russian-held land than Russia managed to seize during its sort of winter counter-offensive. Western intelligence doesn't actually believe there are much in the way of Russian forces behind the main lines of defence. 
and there, so there was a series of collapsing lines which Ukraine has already broken through on its first advance. And then if you say, speak to some sort of Western intelligence types, they'll say that Ukraine is actually 300 metres from some of the main lines of defence. And that's something Ben Wallace actually confirmed to me the other day. And he also said, look, and this is to quote, and instead of there being lots of Russians behind those lines, there aren't. And I think the second positive to look at and speak of is the fact that Ukraine has not actually committed its full reserves from the 12 assault brigades that were created. So they were armed and trained, the majority of I think, nine off the top of my head were armed and trained by NATO countries to basically in the start of this counteroffensive. And if you look at the Western analysis of this, Ukraine is basically waiting for the right moment in time to essentially pile in uh, when an opening in Russia's main defence, Russia's main defence is opens up. And so it has been it has been trickier. One thing I forgot to negate is Ukraine doesn't have a great deal. It has them, but not a great deal of sort of air defence systems on the front line. A lot of them are more concentrated on the major population hubs and critical infrastructure. So. Russia is able to get sort of helicopters and uh, rotary uh, aircraft up above the front line and basically use them to bombard Ukraine as it, uh, Ukrainian troops as it advances. And then going back to sort of the tactics being adopted by Ukraine, uh, some speak of analysis like an onlookers, if you speak to even, even Ukrainians, will, will note they haven't been able to adapt to this full NATO-style combined arms approach where you've got, so I'm not by all means an expert, I'll leave that to leave that to the likes of Dom and Co. I think Hamish is in here as well listening. But they've, yeah, they've not been able to a, a, adopt to that NATO approach because they, they, they had sort of like three months to train on that style of using Western weaponry and they don't have the aerial defence in place to really do it. So they, they, they've basically taken on a more attritional tactic where they're trying to whittle down and degrade Russians' defensive, which speaks to what I yeah, say is trying to find that pile-in moment when Russia would basically struggle to contain a speedy advance. That is, So Ukraine breaks through and it realises that, wow, we're, we're through here, let's get our reserves in there and basically try and counter any Russian response to that. Russia, and one thing Russia has been quite good at is countering, counter-attacking any sort of break in the lines very quickly to try and push it back. So it's not clear whether Ukraine can do this and with what's available on the front line, are they going to actually use reserves to try and try and further break? But then that gives them less reserves to push through and solidify their advances. I think it raises a question: it was probably too much to ask freshly mobilised personnel to learn the art of combined warfare and that Western-style approach, um, and basically being less reliant on artillery fire like under the Soviet doctrine. So, but Ukraine is doing quite well in mixing styles. It's it's using and it has probably an advantage on real precision weapons and. Are probably artillery systems as well, maybe not in number, but in the abilities of them. So it's actually using them quite effectively to manoeuvre manoeuvre sort of smaller units of men to break uh, the lines and break down the defences. And so I, I just don't see a world where Ukraine would also pile in troops to try and break defences like Russia did in Bakhmut. I think one of the main things we can take out of this is Ukraine values the lives of its people, unlike the Russians with the sort of the Wagner prisoner units and the, the Z Storm units, which were basically sent as human cannon fodder, fodder in Bakhmut in the hope of overwhelming Ukraine's defences. And yeah, so like Ben Wallace told, there was a few, like half dozen, dozen British journalists the other day that the meat grinder belongs to Russia. So that's, 
that's something that Ukraine isn't going to do. It values the lives of its men. So it's, it's really hard to tell where this offensive is going. Ukraine is doing well, but it's probably far more costly than the West. Mostly the Americans believed it was going to be. They, I'm sure they didn't believe it was going to be as easy as Kharkiv, where last year, where Ukraine managed to travel 90 kilometers in a day. But they probably thought with the Western backing that Ukraine had received, it would probably be a slightly bit more quicker than this. But I think what we're seeing now looks a lot more like the Kherson offensive, where Ukraine is whittling down Russian logistics, it's whittling down Russian defensive, waiting for that moment, and basically hoping that, that Russia will one day probably try and evacuate the area, run away. It's obviously harder because naturally they're on in the areas they're attacking. There, there aren't sort of natural barriers to Russian logistics like the Dnipro River, which was so effective uh, in recapturing Kherson. So it's not easy, but Ukraine are advancing. If you look at the slow advantages, though, it gives Russia more time to dig in and build new defences. And as I mentioned just above, Ukraine at the moment isn't taking those unnecessary risks with the lives of its people. So it's far from a, a stalemate, but I, I, I think looking at it, tactics will have to be revisited at some stage because Ukraine is losing men and it is, lo- it is, losing, uh, it is losing systems. And it's, it's like battlefield systems, like tanks or whatever. But it's also just it's consuming artillery shells, it's consuming ammunition. Th- those things aren't easily replenished. And unless the West sort of comes forward with real support, it's going to be tricky for Ukraine to really sustain a counterattack. So I'm sure what we're seeing, what we're seeing in the near future is, is a real push from the Ukrainians to be like pushing Western governments to resupply them with tank ammo, with extra fighting vehicles to basically re- replace what's being lost in the offensive. Um, and if that, if that happens, then Ukraine could maybe carry on whittling it down. But I, I still think this is going to be a, a case of months, maybe three months, six months before we see any real, real, real genuine progress. But that's just my sort of personal view on it. It might happen quicker, it might be slower, but it all depends on being able to sustain Ukraine's counteroffensive, and that Western support is massive in that, and I'll stop there. Well, thank you very much for that, Joe. I really hope our listeners appreciate, I, th- I think, asking you all day by day just to get, get your takes is quite interesting, because listeners will be able to sort of put them alongside each other and just see that the, the, the range of reporting and opinions and, and thoughts that we have. So thank you very much, Joe, for taking the time to talk us through that. Uh, we've come to the end of our time today, so could I just go to each of you for your final thoughts? Uh, Natalia or Sophia, would you like to start? Uh, yes, thank you everyone for listening. I would like to say that we're not done with our series. We still have something coming up tomorrow and probably the day after tomorrow. And I think it's very important to uh, take a step step back and look what's, what's happening at the sort of human stories behind it all, you know, behind all the facts and figures and where the front line is moving and who is getting which weapons and, and where the war is progressing. And obviously, yes, this is, this is not just a human story that we have been presenting, but also it's something that underlines what looks like the first war crimes, a possible war crimes prosecution against Russian authorities. So I think it's very important for the public to know why Vladimir Putin is being indicted and what's what's so wrong about moving children from one place to another. Thank you very much, Natalia. Sophia? Picking back off what Natalia said, uh, yes, we have more stories coming. And it's important to remember that this is something that appears to be ongoing. There are more plans that that we've reported on when it comes to the children being moved to Belarus. That number that we have now is just over 2,000 and it's expected to tick up to about 3,000 over the next couple of months. So this is something that is happening 
still, it hasn't stopped. It, it may not stop for quite some time because the invasion is still ongoing. And so it's important to remember that this isn't something that has already occurred and there the are organizations trying to hold people like Putin to account, but rather that this is something still happening and that there are still many children at risk. That is something I think that is very important to remember that this is an ongoing human rights war crimes situation. Thank you very much, Natalia and Sophia. To end the episode, Joe Barnes. Yeah, I, I think there's not anything immediately really sticking out, like Ukraine is sort of toiling away, it's making sort of hard-fought gains. But um, as I was saying about the need for sort of further Western support, and this is what we're, I'll be looking at for the rest of the day, is the 14th uh, Ramstein meeting has just been started and convened by the Americans. That's the group of up to sort of 54 Western nations that are helping Ukraine with weapons supplies led by the US. And they're, 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 they're meeting, and so the US has basically said, look, we need to get more ammunition, we get more air defence systems to Ukraine. So I think um, if it's not me tomorrow, someone else will sort of give us a sort of the overview of anything that was agreed, any packages that were donated, and any support for Ukraine. So I think that is really key, is the West really has to steel itself for a, a longer-than-expected conflict, given the sort of slow nature of the advances so far. It has to really learn and work to sustain Ukraine in the long run. And I'm sure that's, a, well, we know that's a lot of what this G7 overarching security guarantee promise and agreement was uh, designed to do So uh, for Ukraine. So I think we have to really look at that, how the West is preparing itself for the long fight and basically not to, not to give in to Putin, who fought by now that NATO countries and other Western allies of Ukraine would have given up the fight and got on board basically, suffered from war, war fatigue. So I think that's what we really have to look at in the coming weeks is are, are Western countries willing to sort of stomach and stomach the fight and take it on for the long haul? As many of them say, they always say that we're in it, um, we're in it for as long as it takes. And now I think is the real test of that rhetoric from the West. As part of this week's reporting into Ukraine's missing children, I spoke to foreign reporter Verity Bowman. Verity wanted to interview one of her sources, Liza Cassanidi, who works for the charity Helping to Leave. Here's their conversation. I'm here with Liza Cassanidi, who is part of the charity Helping to Leave. And this charity has done an awful lot of work in getting people out of Russia and to safer areas in Ukraine and outside of Ukraine. And here I am today to talk about our article on children who have been deported to Russia and have been saved a lot of them by this charity. So I just want to ask you first, you know, what is your day-to-day job like? What sort of stuff are you facing on a daily basis? Well, I've sort of hopped around a few different roles in the charity. I used to do uh, evacuation from Mariupol and occupied Donetsk area. So that was like Donetsk itself and like a bunch of places occupied in 2014 and then Mariupol. So we used to do that quite actively when there was still direct passage from occupied areas to unoccupied Ukraine. And I'm now mostly working with the Kharkiv region, but not the occupied part. So I mostly deal with people who need special medical evacuations, people with like cancer. So like basically everyone with like difficulties who needs to go from that area to Europe or elsewhere in Ukraine. We've spoken in the past about the cases of missing children that your charity has dealt with. Can you tell me a bit more about what your charity is seeing? Yes, so I think I'm just going to like outline the structure of what we do a little bit more. 
we had quite a few different projects that have started, some of them ended. Obviously, Evacuation has always been the biggest one. I don't remember the exact date it was created, but we have a department that works with evacuating Ukrainians who ended up in Russia. So if they were deported or just sort of had no other choice but to go that way. So that's been working from the earliest days. And obviously now most people who are leaving occupation, they end up going to that through that department. We don't actually help to exit occupation and enter Russia because of sort of safety implications, but most people are quite capable of doing that themselves. So the missing children would usually end up with our, we call it Department of Special Affairs, our DSA, who deal with Ukrainians who end up in Russia. Can you tell me when these cases go to that department, what is the process and what is their response? And can you tell me a bit more specifically about the cases that you've seen? So I'm interested in talking a bit more about Natalia and Igor and Lilia as well, who we've mentioned in our article. Sure, obviously I can't go into too much detail because that will compromise (laughs) a lot of things. But the way people get in touch with us is mostly our chatbot. It's on the messaging platform called Telegram. You And I think we actually have that working on Instagram and Facebook now as well. So you just message in like direct messages and it gives you a bunch of automated questions. And then once it's got your basic information, like where you are, what help you need, whether you have men of a certain age with you, 18 to 60. Yeah, so at this point, it gets redirected to one of the lines, at which point an operator picks it up. And at this point, they're talking to an actual real person, at which point everything is approached quite individually because obviously every case is very different. People's situations with their documents are always different. Specifics like disabilities or illnesses are always very different. So it's always case by case. And there are like massive networks of volunteers and partner organizations and just everyone and everything gets pulled together to pull off every single one. Are there any stories of children who have been abducted or children and families who've managed to get out of these occupied territories that really stand out to you the most? And could you just tell me a bit more about those? There was this kid called Igor who was 16. So he, much like a lot of kids in uh, Kharkiv and Kherson regions that are now deoccupied, so that was quite a common thing that kids would be taken to so-called summer camps in like massive groups, like literally just buses would show up and drive them all away. And after the occupation, they would just end up being separated by the front line from their parents and returning the kids to their parents is a whole thing that the Russian authorities make very complicated because they sort of insist on the parents coming themselves and there's a whole load of bureaucracy and paperwork involved, uh, which is a bit bizarre because like, yeah, you could just take them to Crimea just like that, but now suddenly you care about paperwork. Yes, there was this uh, one kid called Igor, as I mentioned. He was from uh, he was from Kherson region, I'm pretty sure. He and his cousin, who was a bit older but had special needs, they were both taken to a camp and following the occupation of Kherson, obviously his mum ended up on the other side of the front line. They were in touch. They had connection. That actually wasn't probably like the worst case of a summer camp. He doesn't speak too terribly of it he was sort of like we were mostly left to our own devices early on they had activities and such and then when most kids left they were just sort of like okay you just stay here and it took a while for his mom to be able to come and get him uh, so he got in touch with us first then we were in touch with his mom at which point uh, the Ministry of Reintegration of Ukraine does help 
a lot with with cases like that. Was we we have have been working together since the beginning. Yes, they um, sorted out Natalia's paperwork and arranged for her to come to Russia and collect Igor. After which we arranged their travels back. So. When they're managing to get out of Russia, and I know that they were in a seaside resort close to Crimea, mm-hmm. what was the journey like for Natalia having to get all the way from the Kherson area round in a big loop, I believe? It was quite a big loop because obviously she ended up going from across all of Ukraine and out and through. I mean, according to her, she, you know, she was sort of had her eyes on a prize, like she was going to get her son finally. It had been months Without seeing him, she was sort of getting to the point where she was like, will I ever even be able to see him again and when? So I think she was just sort of focusing on that. So the journey there was, she doesn't really remember much of it, as she says. It was sort of like all a bit foggy. And the journey back, she she sent us the pictures afterwards, like they all just looked so happy to be together. (laughs) She was super grateful, obviously, for all the help because the coordinator who worked with her, she's just amazing. Like she, first of all, I don't know when she sleeps. Whenever I message her in the middle of the night thinking she's going to respond tomorrow, I can just see her typing and I'm like, why? Super dedicated. (laughs) Yeah, and with her cases, she's on it constantly. Every little detail is like meticulously done. You know, I had the capability to do that maybe a year ago. Yeah. (laughs) She's still managing somehow and it's honestly incredible to me. And how do you feel when you see these photos of these families reunited and you know that you played a big part as a charity, getting these families back together. It gets emotional. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I remember once having a bit of a dark point and just re-watching this video someone sent me over and over again until I just had to physically stop myself and be like, this is psychotic, what you're doing? <laughs> because obviously not every case you work on is has a happy ending. Most of them do, but, you know, you have especially like right now working with a lot of sick people and I get people dying on me, well not on me, but you know, you just get that message being like, yeah, sorry, mum died and you just sort of fall apart a little bit every time and think that you could have done more, even though I'm not United Nations. We're all just, none, like none of us are trained in this. None of us have ever worked in like relief before. Everyone comes from occupations that have nothing to do with sort of relief work. We all just sort of ended up somehow coming together and like gaining these skills and experience, but by no means is anyone a professional. So it's always, I had one of those about a week ago um, where I just questioned whether I could even keep going with this because someone died and I was like, obviously I didn't do enough. So it's always really difficult but then you know you get a successful one and someone sends you like pictures of their family reunited or just like I have so many message screenshots that I will just I, I don't know I'm just going to keep them like forever I don't know what I'm going to do with them stick them on the fridge probably um, but yeah you just get like such heartfelt and like warm words from people who you know you're never going to meet but you just like know you're somehow like a part of their story forever in a way which is pretty bit strange but also really beautiful and going back a little bit how did you fall into this how did you get involved with the charity how did you know that this was something you wanted to dedicate yourself to when the war started I sort of just was looking for like anything I could do I started with some local volunteering like I lived down in Brighton we had like some protests in the beginning like had a few collections like charity events 
stuff like that. There's a really active community over there. There's some wonderful women doing that. And this charity, I think I just saw a Twitter post or something. So I messaged someone about it and I didn't hear back for a while. And then eventually someone got back to me and I had like an interview and ended up doing... At first, I was taking, like, really simple cases, so it would be, like, someone in, like, Kiev wanting to go to, like, I don't know, Poland or whatever. It was quite simple back then, and then I got thrown into a group that worked with Mariupol, and at the time, we didn't really have an evacuation route from there, and then sort of a couple of us put one together and just started evacuating quite a lot of people. It was just once that sort of thing were, like, overnight, it went from not actually doing that much even though like you know we were doing things but it wasn't like that intense like I could just do a couple of hours here and there and then just overnight somehow it turned into like waking up to calls calling messaging like asking the finance department for money um, making lists calling more people Uh, it hasn't really stopped since (laughs) and the sort of messages you're receiving what are people saying to you I could read one out if you want. Yeah, that'd yeah. be great. Um, hi, Liza. I want to thank you for what you do. You can't even imagine how relieved I felt when I saw Ukrainian military. The whole road was full of uh, fear, which I had never experienced before, especially for so long. The Russians are unpredictable wild animals, and remaining in occupied territories is constant psychological torture. When you offered us help, that night was the first time in four months that I didn't have a nightmare. Thank you so much. You, one could say that you saved our lives as, as well as many other people on our bus. We're all very scared, worried, panicked in case something went wrong. But now we're in our native Ukraine. I will remember you forever. That's actually making me quite emotional. <laughs> wow. Made me uh, emotional. I've read this before. <laughs> can you tell me a little bit more other than Igor? When we're talking about missing children, what other cases has your charity come across? So, yes, I was talking to someone about statistics the other day. Obviously, we'll never know the exact statistics, but we know of at least 2,000, and it's probably a lot larger than that. There was this one case my colleague was telling me about that I don't think I actually told you about before. I think they were from Kharkiv region. Uh, There was somewhere in an occupied territory, and they ended up having... It was a woman who had about six or seven children, and she had to take her daughter to, like, her daughter needed, like, medical attention urgently, so they ended up going to Belharod for that because there was nowhere else to access it. Like, the medical situation, especially back then in occupied territories, was, like, atrocious. We can go back to that at some point. Um, and then, then her ex-husband also went there, but I think he was on the pro-Russian side, if you will, and he ended up staying there. Long. I think he's, like, still there. So they took her daughter to the hospital and then she had to go back to her other five, six children and um, her father was supposed to stay there and, you know, like, look after her and it turned out that her deadbeat father signed, like, a release form basically saying that he can't, like, cope with, like, a child with medical problems and he's, like, relinquishing all responsibility and instead of reaching out to her biological mother, who is alive, and nearby, they just sent her to, like, a foster home, okay. which is, like, where's the logic here? Mm. They, she literally has a perfectly fit parent who is, like, a couple of hours away. Like, why? why? Mm. Uh, so she had to go all the way there and, like, get a bunch of papers and deal with that, and she got her daughter back, thankfully. 
But if she had been adopted before she got there, that would have been a whole other thing because that's a lot more difficult. So have you dealt with cases where parents have come to you and their children have been adopted? Or is Not, there something... I don't think we've had any of those personally, okay. but it's just something we're very aware of. So what happens at that point if a child is adopted? Is, that, is it kind of a bit of a race against time? Yeah, you could say that because uh, before, like, if they're not adopted, then it's just sort of like the matter of showing up and like proving that you are, in fact, related. It's it's a big mystery to me how they imagine the law working over there. Because say they hand out Russian citizenships to people sometimes forcefully, and they say that they now have given up their Ukrainian passports, so like the Ukrainian citizenships. But how does that work? Because obviously, like, it's not like they're going to call up. Ukraine and be like, sorry, but yeah, this person doesn't want to be a citizen anymore. Like, it's not, it doesn't work like that. And it's the same with children. Like, by Russian law, like the original parent is like stripped off guardianship and it's given to someone else. So by this insane, like, internal understanding of laws, this child belongs to someone else now. But that's not how the world works. But that's how it works over there. So it's gladly we haven't had actually any cases where the kid was adopted beforehand but we have heard that it just like makes the whole bureaucratic process a lot more difficult because now we're dealing with like someone else being a legal guardian. So one of the main cases that we've been talking about for a few months now is the case of Lilia who was deported to Russia along with her children when they were injured in an airstrike. Could you tell me a little bit more about that case? Yeah of course. So Lilia had two kids and she was living in then occupied Kharkiv region the house was shelled and her husband was killed in the process. And her daughter was injured as well. Uh, and then her son was complaining of back pain. They ended up going to a hospital still in the occupied territory. So they went to like a local hospital. They sort of administered all the help they could, but they said that they're better off going to a hospital in uh, Belgorod, in Russia. So they ended up agreeing and going and then actually turned out to be like a really good thing because her son also had uh, a back injury as it turned out which it wasn't spotted at the hospital in the occupied territory so they if they had just gone home like it would have gotten so much worse so they were in Belhard for a while first at the hospital then at the refugee camp then it was sent to a little town somewhere nearby for like a more permanent sort of accommodation situation she has, she has mentioned a lot about sort of the local news coming over and taking what she said really out of context and then showing that on TV and such. Like, there was one time when the journalist asked her, was like, you know, how are you feeling? Like, everything's going to be great. Like, Russia's going to, like, rebuild everything. And she was like, well, of course everything's going to be great, sure, but my husband's dead. My, my house is ruined. Like, we never asked for this. We never asked for anyone to come and free us. We were fine. <laughs> then she turns on the TV and she sees herself just going, everything's going to be fine which is, am I allowed to swear? No. <laughs> <laughs> you, you get that. <laughs> yeah, I get it. Um, yeah. Uh, and there was sort of like another similar one like that as well, where it sort of showed her like waving happily in some sort of like a montage about how all these poor Ukrainian families are being helped by Russians. And it's not like Lily ever said that like all the Russians were bad or anyone treated them particularly badly when they were there. But it was more that just any sort of negativity was interpreted as her being ungrateful. There was this one 
once again, I might be like getting some facts a bit wrong here, but there was a nurse at the hospital her daughter was in who was constantly like sort of trying to act very friendly and act like they were friends. And when Lilia was on her way out, like when she's already left the country, she like texted her being like, oh, we're like on our way to Switzerland. This pretty hasn't been working out, blah, blah, blah. Like, love you, Lilia. And she gets this essay back about how ungrateful she is, how like... Russia gave them everything and she just has no gratitude and that's the general vibe I think of their uh, but yeah they're in Switzerland now they're doing quite good her kids really want to go back to Ukraine but she's sort of stalling for now um, yeah this one definitely has a happy ending that was quite a difficult one to plan as well because her son I think needed special transport because of his back so that was a whole sort of complex thing to arrange and that's a big reason why we never used to evacuate people from, like, occupied territories via Russia when we had the options. But at the same time, that just creates this, like, very, like, it's just, it's so difficult to, like, sort of find finances for that. So we're, like, based out of donations. But when the Kohovka Dam was blown up quite recently, uh, the volume increased so drastically. Even now when the flooding has gone down, there's still people, you know, with, like, residual effect or people who are now realizing they they really gotta go and like no one's gonna help them if something like that happens again. And just the finances are so tight all the time. And none of our big grants can cover that and it's just like super frustrating for everyone involved. Yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine. Ukraine the latest is an original podcast from the Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to the Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine the latest. We'll sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to the podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Giles Gear, and the executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells. 
a lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, <laughs> yeah, you, you were different. Like you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected yeah. things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.